So I know you guys are enjoying what we do, as well as the other podcasts, news, reviews, and everything provided by the BatmanUniverse.net. And we know this because traffic has been very high on the BatmanUniverse.net. It's exploded. So in order to help pay for their server costs, why don't you consider throwing some cash at them? They have a donate button on their website. You can help with server costs to keep providing the content that you love, all things Batman. Yeah, and for just a few dollars for all the listeners, we'll have it covered in no time. And we really appreciate you helping out uh, those of us here at the BatmanUniverse.net to keep bringing you all this great Batman coverage. So thanks for what you do and enjoy the show. A great philosopher of the internet once said, always be yourself. Unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us are Terry McGinnis and will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him in his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Dylan. And my name is John. This will be episode 146, Dead Reckoning. And this is a story from Detective Comics. Uh, We will jump right in here to Education Alley. In issue 777, we have Leonard Weinstein, who is the guy that died in the Killer Moth outfit. He shares his name with a retired NASA research scientist. I found that a little bit interesting. That is pretty interesting. Uh, Do you know when that uh, retired NASA scientist retired? Uh, Was active? Mid-2000s, I think. So that was... He would have been a... He was... One one place I saw said he worked for 35 years at NASA, and another place said he started in 62, which would have been 45 years, so... So, but this book came out in what, early 2000s, right? uh, 2003, 2002, I think? Yeah, somewhere around there. So he was a NASA scientist at the time. Yeah, 2003. Yeah, 2003. So he was a NASA scientist at the time. Yes, he was. So that's kind of cool. I don't know if that was intentional or just a coincidence. I, I, you know, at this point, I don't know. Based on some of the other stuff that we're going to be talking about here in a second, it could very well have been intentional. Yeah. All right. And then uh, seven seventy eight, uh, the books on the shelf in uh, Professor Gordon, which is weird to say to me. Uh, his office. There's uh, two. There's books. There's Hunting Humans. Two books have this name. A book from the nineteen ninety with the subtitle of an Encyclopedia of Modern Serial Killers. It's one I definitely think I should pick up. And a book from 2003 with the subtitle of Rise of the Modern Multiple Murderer. So I'm thinking it has to be the 1990 book. Well, I mean, if, if that, would be, that would be most likely, yeah, the one that, that is in reference. But I thought it was interesting that two had that title, so oh, I yeah. included both of them. And then there's another book in there called Cake or Death. Now, this one I want to talk about. It's a joke by Eddie Izzard from his uh, uh, late 1990s stand-up special, Dressed to Kill. And he's talking about the Church of England, how, like... If the Church of England had done the Inquisition, it would have been much different. Cake or death? I'll have the cake, please. All right, give him the cake. Eddie Izzard is, of course, a phenomenal stand-up comedian who I greatly enjoy. There's also a book in 2008 with the subtitle of The Excruciating Choice of Everyday Life. Which, of course, this cannot be referencing since this is five years before that. Yeah, so... But I did find it interesting that while you immediately thought of the Eddie Izzard skit, there is actually a book with that title. So, to to be fair, uh, the Eddie Izzard skit, that be, that's probably one of his most famous skits, and that's actually the name of his fan club is Cake or Death. So, oh, see, that part I did not know. Yeah, so kind of interesting. All right, in issue 779, we have a bunch of visitors to the retirement home, and this is when Batman is investigating, uh, I forget which criminal he's investigating. Was it Riddler? I don't, I think it was... 
I don't think it was the the main the main guy, the main no, villain. It I must have been somebody it else, been, yeah. or Two Face, maybe. Maybe Two Face. Um, but the names on the the visitor log, there's a couple that I wanted to highlight. H. Lofting, which is the author Hugh Lofting, who created the character Doctor Doolittle, and he was also trained as a civil engineer. And then another one on there was Greville McDonald, who's the son of an influential fantasy writer, and he became an ear, nose, and throat doctor as an adult. But as a child, he and his siblings were the test subjects of his uncle Lewis Carroll's novel, Alice in Wonderland. And to, to uh, kind of truncate this, all the other names on the visitor log are also authors. But there's not quite, with his interestingest backstory. No, no, but there's quite a few. Yeah, so that was, that was an interesting touch that all those people were, that he listed were actual authors. And the, I suppose the question is, who listed it? Was it the artist or the author? And that's a good question. Um or the editor suggested it, it would make sense that, you know, honestly, anybody could have done that because it was a a part of the art, not necessarily part of the dialogue. Yeah, and there's nothing story-related to any of the names. Like, none of them are, are within uh, the DC universe. So they were all... Um, they could have been done by the artist as, just as easily as, as the writer. And that's kind of interesting to think about in the back behind the curtains of the comic book industry, where those decisions get made and how they get, you know, put in those little Easter eggs like that, like, uh, death, cake or death, you know, it was that the author, the writer was that the artist who threw that in. Yeah. And uh, also in issue 779, we have Mark Merlin. That's someone that Batman talks to. He's a spiritual detective. And Mark's first appearance was in house of secrets 23 in 1959. And he was later reincarnated into Prince raw man in House of Secrets 73 in 1965. Ramen noodles? No, not ramen noodles. Oh. All right, so in also in 779, Paul Sloan lists his idols as Lon Chaney and Boris Karloff. Lon Chaney is regarded as one of the most versatile and powerful actors of early cinema, renowned for his characterization of tortured, often grotesque, and afflicted characters, as well as his groundbreaking artistry with makeup. Chaining is known for his starring roles in such silent horror films as The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera in, in uh, 1923 and 1925, respectively. His ability to transform himself using makeup techniques he developed earned him the nickname The Man of a Thousand Faces. And Boris Karloff was widely known for his roles in horror films, particularly for his portrayal of Frankenstein's monster in Frankenstein in 1931 and Imhotep in The Mummy. He also played Scarface in the 1932 version of Scarface and has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Now, I was expecting them to also bring up Bela Lugosi because when these Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney are brought up, I often hear Bela Lugosi's name brought up as well, who's another famous uh, monster movie actor. He played Dracula and Igor in Son of Frankenstein, which was also a, a film with Boris Karloff in it because he was the same Frankenstein's monster. And it's really weird they didn't, Bring up Lugosi. I mean, talk about famous actors from that era. But you know, that's I guess they just made the editorial decision just to list uh, Cheney and Karloff. And I I like pointing that out because as a kid I was fascinated by those those movies, all the old movie monster movies. And even though I sometimes feel like I'm old, this is still really old. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that John is Paul Sloan. I'm just saying I've never seen the two of them in a the room together. This is true. <laughs> That is a very convincing mask, though. All right, so after that, uh, we're going to jump right into our talking points. And one that uh, kind of something that John and I discussed is the art. I found it, and I think John as well, found it very reminiscent of the Batman animated series. 
especially with uh, Two-Face, Penguin, and the Joker, they're very close to the style from the animated series. Now, other villains were similar, but had a few key details changed. Uh, Matt Hatter, he had a lot of similarities from the animated series, Very the very large nose, the very large teeth. But there's a few changes, and Scarecrow looked very different than his animated series counterpart, I think. He had a couple similarities, but yeah, I... I there was uh, two versions in the animated series, and neither one fit quite right with how he was depicted here. And I, one thing I did notice, because once we got on this topic, I was looking at all the villains. Riddler has the suit version from uh, Batman 66. Yeah, the question mark suit. Yeah, and, and the bowler hat, but not the same one that's in, in the animated series. So uh, that was kind of um, interesting there, because... He also, in the 66, Batman 66, he had the jumpsuit type. Um, it was more pajamas and less lycra back then, but yeah. it would be the like the lycra suit um, that Jim Carrey was wearing, except it only had a single question mark on it instead of the multi-question marks. And then uh, the heroes looked, their, their designs were totally different. Catwoman was wearing the more quote-unquote cat suit with the zip-up front and the goggles that more reminiscent of, and I know this came well before it, but the Batman video games, Arkham City video game with the more realistic style of at least the goggles and what have you. Well, she's wearing the same outfit that was introduced in the Catwoman Dark End of the the Street storyline that we covered, Um, and I'm pretty sure that's probably what carried into the video games. Yeah, and then uh, Batman looked, he had different design. Yeah, he was, I mean, like I said, the heroes were... They were they were different from what we have been covering in, in the stories, and that threw me off just a little bit um, because I was like, "Well, I know that's Alfred, but he doesn't really look like the Alfred I've been seeing, you know, in the in the past arcs that we've been covering." But you could still tell it was him. So, yeah. I mean, the, this this person had definitely a an influence from Batman the animated series, but he also brought his own style to it as well. So yes. that was kind of an interesting mix. I I liked it, but you said you found it distracting at first, at least. Yeah, that, just like what I was just saying there with the people. I knew who they were by context, but they didn't quite look the same as what we had been seeing in some of the more recent stories that we've been covering, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, each artist should do their their own thing as long as it's somewhat reminiscent of, of uh, comic book style. Although every once in a while you get that one that's just like completely out of left field and sometimes it works great and other times it, it's it doesn't i know there was one we covered a while back that was the uh i don't uh, the tax man the story with the tax man on it and that art style was just totally wonky i was not a fan of that at all i don't remember that one that was a while back uh but yeah i mean i i enjoyed the art i i thought it was once again you know as i've said before Batman the Animated Series was a big part of me getting into comic books and comic book stories and what have you. So, I enjoyed it. But yeah, I mean, second read through it didn't bother me. I was I was on board because because but the first read through it was just a, a tiny bit, very tiny bit distracting. Yeah. Uh, because I was I had to think twice about who these people were because they didn't quite look what I like what I was expecting. That was our only really quote unquote neutral part point. The rest we have is good points. Yeah, we don't really have any bad points for this story. The first thing that we wanted to tackle in the good points though is is this is a very much a detective story, which is something we both enjoy. It is. Uh, Batman spends most of the story following clues and trying to figure out who the killer is. While this is a detective story, one thing that I did find interesting about it is Batman's not a very good detective. <laughs> the uh, the killer in this the the uh, Sloan. Sloan or uh, Charlatan. Charlatan, thank you. He 
is ahead of Batman at, at pretty much every step. So, I mean, that that was interesting, and, and there's a good reason for it in the story. But it was just kind of interesting to me that while this was a good detective story, Batman wasn't overly competent at his detectiving. Well, I almost think that's a good thing. You, you don't have God Batman that, you know, we've discussed this before, where it's like, oh, Batman, he's a master of criminology and crimology. He's got, you know... He he knows forensic. He knows chemical compounds. He knows all these things that really wouldn't make sense for one person to know. And the the breadth of knowledge that he has is just so extreme. So having him kind of narrowed down to being a more basic detective and less of a god character, at least in this aspect, is refreshing for me because he's not just like, oh yeah, it's Sloan, bam, done. What what's next? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously you have to. He can't know immediately who it is, or else you you can't have six issues. Oh yeah. Um. So he has to take some time to figure it out. I just I just found it interesting that this was more up the alley of kind of what you'd expect from the GCPD as far as detectiving. He's following clues. He's interviewing people. He, he's getting more information that way. Moving on to the next uh, clue, the next person to interview, that sort of thing. And I mean, he's doing all that well. Don't don't get me wrong. But yeah, you don't have any of that. Well, I I gathered this soil sample and I tested it, and it only can come from this place, so it must be this person. Like there isn't the CSI aspect to it with the forensics. So it was it was a different from some of the other detective stories we've seen, where like you said, Batman has sometimes got that Bat God complex, which we're not <laughs> terribly huge fans of. So I did like it. It's it's just interesting to me that oh definitely, definitely. he's not depicted in the best light as far as his detective work. He's competent, but he's not super competent. He's not over-competent. So, yeah, I think that's something that, you know, it being, of course, as we said, a good point, something we both enjoyed. We both wanted to see more of a more human Batman in that aspect. Well, it's just, I always like the detective stuff because it seems to be the forgotten element to Batman (laughs) a lot of times. In any movie, any... uh you know, con- any modern comic book anymore. He's just beat him up super, super bad. Yeah, punch the city into being good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's always nice to see the detective element whenever we come across it. So um, I did enjoy that point. Uh, the, la- the next thing we have is that Batman, we're told this, Batman has a soft spot for Harvey Dent. And we're told that he's a little more gung-ho when, he, when Two-Face is involved. And I uh, found the, that interesting. A little context here. This is when Batman is interviewing, quote-unquote, interviewing Joker, trying to get information out of him. Um, and Joker says, it's like, hey, you know, maybe it's because you guys were on the same side of the coin, but that, you know, he's always more he, more gung-ho. He's always more willing to risk himself to save Harvey Dent because he has a affiliation with Harvey Dent. Well, and I think he also wants the good the good side of Harvey Dent to win out as much as possible. Of course. And yeah, I, that's definitely something that's cool because it's something that paints a very, once again, a more human Batman who has these feelings, who has these emotions. He's not just emotionless, broody guy. He's like, he has things that affect him and losing Harvey Dent to Two-Face, obviously something that affects him. Well, and I think it also gives uh, a depth to Two-Face as well. And he's not just this guy who whatever he d- does is decided by a coin. A coin. Um, there is the past of him being on the, the right side of the law, him being the district attorney uh, and being a very competent district attorney and the tragedy that, that turned him into Two-Face and then the struggle between his good side and his bad side. It's not, 
it's not just am I going to do the good thing or the bad thing in this situation. It's it's a struggle, and the the coin is kind of a crutch. Um, and so I I think it adds a lot of depth to Two Face as well as to Batman in his interactions with that villain. And amazing how like one line can can totally just ext- you know doing a little bit of extrapolation really create more of a character, bring a character more to flesh in life. Yeah, and we've talked a number of times about things like this where we kind of need it to continue on through other writers for it to really cement. Yes. Um, but I like the idea here, and I like to see where that is going, even if I have to extrapolate it myself. <laughs> yep. So the next one we have is the main villain of the story, Paul Sloan, a.k.a. Charlatan. Uh, the name actually comes from... Well, I mean, there's an origin to the name, the word charlatan, but we're not going to get into that. Well, we we could have, but we just didn't prepare it. <laughs> that too. Um, but he he, this kind of comes from him at, when he first meets Batman. He's talking about the killer moth being killed. He he has a mask on. He's uh, playing as an old man named Mister Tan. He keeps telling the detectives interviewing him to call him Charlie, Charlie Tan, Charlatan. Yeah, that struck me as. As possibly misdirection to make you think that maybe it was uh, Riddler or something, someone like that. You know, that's that's trying to kind of throw throw a joke name out there to get Batman onto their path. And we're kind of given that he is trying to get Batman on his path um, through the rest of the things that happen in the story. So maybe he was trying to use that sort of um, method that the Riddler often uses to get Batman to chase him down his, his riddle uh, maze. Um, but w- another thing about Charlatan is this is a recycled villain. His first appearance was in Detective 580 in November 1987. Uh, but this story that, we ju- that we're covering here, Dead Reckoning, is a complete reimagining of Paul's story and ha- really has no connection to his two-part story in 1987. In that story, he was playing Harvey Dent in the TV movie about uh, Two-Face, and the prop guy had swapped out the vial, the the vial of acid that was supposed to be thrown in his face. It was supposed to be water, but it got swapped out to being acid. So he got basically turned into a clone of Two Face. And then it, the story is basically Batman and Robin, and it is so reminiscent of like the the early Batman stories or the <laughs> Batman sixty six stories, um, even though it was written in eighty seven. But it's it's Batman and Robin chasing down. Two Face and him, and trying to figure out who's the real person. You know, <laughs> no, which, I'm Two Face. No, I'm Two Face. Yeah, exactly. You get you get a lot of that. So and uh, and then they use surgery to change his face back to normal. But then for this story, Two Face turned him back into that so that he could use him in his scheme. But it it kind of blew up on Two Face because he went further than Two Face was expecting. And so at the very end of the story, once they, they you know sort everything out, they use the surgery and turn him back into Paul Sloan at the end of that two issue story in 1987. So it's similar, but I think this one is, is done a lot better as oh. far as the, the way he the, the way his origin is involved with him being fascinated by serial killers and the uh, supervillains of Gotham and trying to link up with them for a job and then just going off the deep end and eventually being, and we'll talk about this more, being tortured by by them and turned into what, what he became as charlatan. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's something that's it's interesting, even though, you know, I think we both like this character. We like the idea of a character who goes off the deep end, who 
a villain who is in his costume, in his makeup, and this is something that I think the Riddler says, or no, Joker says, that outside of makeup, he was scared of the, the Riddler, the Penguin, Two-Face, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. As he should be. But in makeup, he wasn't. Right, he he became what he dressed up as, which in uh, in this case, at the beginning of the story, he was supposed to impersonate Two Face, and I mean, like to the point where in in the story the Joker tells Riddler doesn't he, he was in character he refused much like uh, Daniel Day Lewis refused to answer to anything but his character's name and got violent about it yeah, when and got violent with the Riddler made a mistake yeah when the Riddler called him Sloan instead of Two Face so. It's kind of it's kind of cool to see a character, uh, a villain that loses himself in the role, to the point where it's two distinct personalities. It's, it's much like you know Two Face, a split personality. Only it's whoever's skin he's occupying is who he is. Yeah, I really do like the actor origin for a villain. Um, I've always liked the Basil Carlo Clayface, which oh, yeah. is also a similar origin. But that's really kind of about as close as these two get is is the origin similarities. Because um, obviously Clayface can physically change into whatever he wants to, yeah. and um, of course, uh, what's the other, the we saw her? I can't think of her, her name. Jane oh, Doe. Oh, Jane Doe. Yeah, yeah. Jane Doe. It, in so much as the impersonation part. Now, mind you, hers is almost supernatural, whereas his is you know makeup and what have you. Yeah, but I mean, the, I guess another similarity between Clayface and this guy is that once they are, whether it's makeup or or shape changed, they then do have to act as that person. So that is another similarity there um, between the two. So I really do like this villain, and I, it's a shame that that he wasn't used again, at least as far as I could tell. Um, but he's still alive at the end of the story, so maybe he'll get uh reintroduced uh when they with the with whatever they're doing with rebirth you know cuz new 52 is pretty much over at this point oh, so and th- that's kind of the problem is i mean unless someone brings him back like they they did for this story you know he, he's basically not been used in two reboots <laughs> you know um well two this reboots ago right so he wasn't used in the new 52 reboot right yeah. so rebirth is going back in some ways, but also progressing forward. So they don't want to call it a reboot. Don't call it a comeback. Yeah. We've still been here for years. <laughs> um, but yeah, it would be interesting to see if someone picks him back up at some point. Uh, I wonder why no one came up with another story for him. I, I mean, maybe they feel like between Jane Doe and uh, Basil uh, Carlos Clayface that there isn't really a distinct place for him, and I they'd mean, rather use those characters. Yeah, it, could he be seen as derivative? Because he doesn't really have a superpower. And on his own, he's not that much of a threat, I don't guess, beyond being a very good actor. And planner. I mean, and that's planner, something yeah. we're, we're going to talk about next here, which is Sloane's plan. Um, I really did like the misdirection in this arc. Oh, yeah, it totally like, caught he, me off guard. He completely sets up Batman um, like we were saying, Batman is is acting like a regular detective, following what's being put in front of him. But what's being put in front of him is misdirection to keep him keep him uh, heading heading towards where uh, Charlatan wants him to go, but not ahead of the pace that Charlatan wants him to get there, so that Charlatan can set up his ultimate end game, uh, which is to try and blow up Batman when uh, he's confronting Two-Face. So so let's let's give a little context here. 
the reason Sloan is a bad guy in the story arc, the reason he's trying to kill Batman is Killer Moth, Riddler, Penguin, and Joker got together and wanted to use Two Face to as a a bit of a lure to kill Batman. They wanted to kill him, and it was about eight years ago in, in story time. Two Face flipped the coin and said, "Nah, I'm out." So they got Sloan. Which was what we spoke about earlier of him impersonating Two-Face uh, as that part of the story. So Sloan, because he's a method actor, tries to pull off a heist and gets stopped by Batman, gets foiled. Two-Face finds out about it, is infuriated that Sloan imper- is impersonating him and trying to take you know his name, and much less failing to, to live up to the hype, and proceeds to chop Sloan's face all to hell. And then he leaves him for dead. Scarecrow rescues him and uh, revitalizes him. And experiments on him. He's trying to... Uh, Scarecrow's experiment was to... Control ma- his level of fear, I yeah, believe. Yeah, control, control like a part of the brain that produces you know the fear hormones or what have you, but accidentally makes him fearless. So, And then he spends the eight years building this plan that we're talking about here to... Complete what he started eight years ago. So, yeah, it, it's one of those, like, a little convoluted, but still really, really workable story uh, origins. But, yeah, the entire misdirection in the arc was that this was all part of the plan, or at least it was a improvisation of the plan. Well, and, and so what Batman is following at the beginning is the, the supervillains getting killed. So you have the guy that we mentioned, uh, Leonard Weinstein, who was wearing the the killer moth outfit, who was the only one, I guess, who was actually killed. Um, But then uh, Penguin gets attacked and presumed dead. uh, And Sloane is feigning killing these other supervillains kind of to lure Batman down this detective path to get him eventually with Harvey as bait into the trap that that, uh, Sloane or uh, Charlatan has set for Batman. And I'm really curious... Should this villain ever return, if he will be focused on killing Batman for the same reason, the reason being what you outlined there about being hired to kill him eight years ago in this story, I guess it would be further if he comes back at a later time. Like, is he going to be obsessed about finishing up this plan? Is that kind of the hook to keep bringing this character back? Well, yeah, I mean, and and what more can you use him for beyond his initial... Introductory initial reason for being. Well, we've seen in a number of stories we've covered where uh, lesser grade villains are used as a tool of uh, of a higher grade villain in their plan. So, I mean, there's always that opportunity of hiring him to impersonate someone to be a portion of a bigger plan. So, I mean, there are ways to use him where he's not the main focal point but if he is the main focal point, I kind of feel like yeah, it has to be him still trying to. Uh, succeed at this plan that he's failed at you know twice well i mean you know and that feeds into the kind of discussion point that of this being an intricate story with new nuance and nuggets where the joker sabotaged the original plan because he thought it would be funny well and also he was kind of out as well like it was starting to go down a direction where he's like this isn't really going to work i want out of this so i'm going to make it fail so that i don't look like two-face of pulling out of the plan but it we'll all stop and go back to our own separate devices. So, but I mean, the fact that this, this story has such nuance and, and little nuggets like that and all the detective work that, you know, we both love to see and Sloan almost manipulating Batman to do the detective work in a way, get the results that he wants them to be. 
So really, Sloane is a mastermind because he manipulates Batman. Yeah, and that's what I like about the I like about the charlatan character is how well of a planner he is, how good of an impersonator he is. Like, there's a lot of interesting elements to this character, and I really am disappointed that we don't see him any more than the two stories that we've mentioned. Yeah, I mean, beyond what we talked about of him being a phenomenal uh, uh, dis- uh, master of disguise and phenomenal actor there is that planning aspect that you mentioned briefly where he is a brilliant tactician he's a brilliant planner and this would be a character that would do well in the batman universe where you have guys who are like riddler is a great planner to a degree but this guy is just you know levels above where the riddler plans you know at, at the riddler's best Right, uh, or even maybe they're on the same level in Riddler's plan because of his ego of needing Batman to try and figure out his clues. He could be a lot better if he wasn't baiting Batman with his plans all the time. Is that, it ego or is it theory. psychosis? Well, probably a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, this, this is a character that, you know, and this feeds back into what we were talking about before, but it's just a character who we both really like. And it's a bummer that he doesn't get used more because he's just so brilliant he's so well you know maybe it's just the writer in this but he's so well written yeah and we've seen that with certain characters where if somebody else tries to write them they they they're sometimes not as good so it might very well be that this is ed Ed brubaker making this character more interesting than somebody else might um there is one more nugget here i want to talk about um before we move on Gordon and Alfred are trying to be the optimistic voice for Bruce, who is very much a pessimist in this story. Oh, I mean, you know, one of the key traits of the Batman is broody pessimism. Broody, but I mean, this is this is beyond broody in, in a lot of aspects. He's he fe- and this is the next thing we're going to talk about is he believes that he created Sloane, and um, Gordon and Alfred both you know basically tell him that no, you didn't. He was created by the supervillains in this town. I think uh, the line Gordon uses, if we we could talk about cause-effect all night, and we did just end up on one caveman hitting another caveman over the head with a club. You can't hold yourself accountable for every bad thing that happens in Gotham. Right, that that is what Gordon says, and I thought that was that was a, a brilliant thing of of being snarky as well as pointing out that there are a myriad of, of reasons for everything, and you, you can't possibly be the only contributing factor so something you just said just struck me it was gordon being snarky so would this be a line better served by having alfred because alfred's you know pretty infamously pretty snarky with bats maybe but i mean i think it also shows the the mentor mentor relationship there of gordon and and batman you know gordon is often in this era where he's 30 years older than batman shown to be sort of a, a, a father figure and a mentor to, to Batman. Well, and we do have a Gordon who's not a, a police commissioner or detective anymore. He's a college professor. Right, so he, he's he's out of the game, too. So maybe there's a little bit of cynicism there as well. Yeah, well, having to deal with college students will do that, I think. <laughs> um, but uh, we get a very brief mention of the theory that what we were just talking about, that because of the Batman, the supervillain showed up and... This is one of those things that I don't... Have we tackled this? I don't think we have. I don't think so. Um, so this is one of those ones where you can you can have a really uh, spirited debate because I don't think there is a right answer. Kind of my, my theory on this is that 
um, Batman showed up because of the petty crime that needlessly killed his parents. And then he was there and a big threat showed up because of the nature of publishing. But if we kind of put that aside for as much as we can and just talk about this in in the the narrative world that we have. Let's look at Joker. I think Joker is the prime example. Right. Let's use him as the, the the force that comes in without any, uh, like he would show up no matter what, whether there was a Batman or not. Well, hold on now. It depending on the origin and I'm going to stick with the red hood origin. I think that's the most accepted origin for Joker. It's the one that I go to. Yeah. So we'll, we'll use that as a basis. There's a gang. They use Red Hood. Red Hood gets falls in the vat because Batman shows up, becomes the Joker. Now, that's not to say that he wouldn't have fallen in the vat anyway, or that, I don't know, a detective showing up, if they, they had tripped the alarms, he wouldn't have fallen in the vat anyway. So I don't know if you can, but, but because Batman showed up and... and well, uh, okay, so let, let's go with, with what, you, what you're saying okay. there. Um, so the first order of effect is the gang exists. The gang exists, I, yes. I think that would happen no, no matter if Batman is there or not. True. So the second order of effect is that because something shows up, whether that's the police or Batman, he falls into the vat and becomes the Joker. So you're, you're kind of jumping ahead on where I was going here, okay. which, is, which is fine. So I feel like Sloan is a second order of effect. I feel like because the Joker or the Red Hood gang or whatever it is is there and is battling Batman, that... Um, they can cause through harm, damage, plans like this can cause second order of effect villains like we have with Charlatan, but they can also cause idealized villains. So you have some villains who see these people and be like, I'm going to do what they do, and then they become a villain. So I think... Killer Moth. Killer Moth is a prime example that the henchman taking Killer Moth's uniform after Killer Moth got, I guess, incarcerated or what... We don't know. He might be dead. He might be incarcerated. Yeah. Um, But yes, that's a perfect example of someone who's like, I'm taking up this mantle, which is even another option, too, of there was already an established person as this, but they're out of the picture. I'm taking up their mantle... And becoming a legacy villain. Well, let's look at at zero order of effect villains. Uh, Penguin was already on his way. He was already, you know, who he was. He was already the master of crime. Uh, Riddler already had his psychosis, already had his disorder. It, these are guys who, and I just use those two as a prime example, Catwoman. Yeah, those would be first order. Uh, I, I say zero order of effect. Basically, they, regardless of any other outside stimuli, because of their characterization, they exist. First order makes me think of the immediate effect of something happening. Second order is something happening because that zero order is the the zero point, the focal point. I would these say, are, I would say the, the, exist, the existence of crime is the zero order. Okay, of yeah, effect. we can do that. Um, well, yeah, that's that's kind of taken on a very uh, high philosophical uh, level there. Well, I mean, the, the, that's because kind of crime what, exists. Yeah, that, that's kind of what's been going through my head about this is that. Because crime exists, because there will always be a need for the Batman, even if it's just to stop petty crime and things happening like that, then you have some first order effects of people who view crime as a way to accomplish some sort of goal where you've got your penguins, you've got your Catwomans. I wouldn't really say Riddler is is looking for any particular goal from his crimes. He's just got this compulsion to do riddles and... Um, to get Batman to solve his riddles, and he does that by using crime as as a, a method to get Batman's attention. I I would say. But the argument against that goes: yes, crime exists. Of course, crime exists. That's an, uh, that's a, a part of the nature of of the story. But 
without a Batman, criminals aren't going to elevate their game. Batman is basically a uh, bringing a, a gun to a knife fight. So now the criminals have to bring a bigger gun. And then the so so if Batman didn't exist, they would still be using knives basically. In it, in theory, right? In theory, I'm following yeah. what you're saying. So I, is Batman responsible for an elevation of crime by by existing by the existence of superheroes? Are there is that the reason they're supervillains? Now that one I can get behind that there's an elevation of the escalation of force, an escalation of force, or an elevation of the severity of crimes due to the Batman effect. Um, but I don't I don't particularly buy that he is responsible for every single supervillain. I think a number of these various method methods we've talked about is where the supervillains come from. Um, speaking of an in world narrative, you know, not talking about publishing and all that. Victor's uh, ass is another one who exists. Regardless of the Batman, he's a criminal. His his origin is he gambled away his family's fortune, and he was predisposed, I guess, to mental disorder and nihilism. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I so Victor's as is a serial killer. Like right. that's a guy who's a straight up serial killer. So he would exist out regardless of Batman. Now, without the Batman in place, would the cops be more capable because they don't have the Batman to fall back on? And we've seen it several times where Batman goes away or. Any hero goes away, and all of a sudden, the vacuum left by him is filled with with all these villains having no real, nothing to really stop them because the police aren't equipped to handle them. I, I think that it, that is more on the publishing side than than on on the world side because okay. I feel like the police. I don't feel like you're going to have police that don't have a. Uh, the police in Gotham are not going to have a SWAT team because of Batman. True. I feel like they're going to also have a SWAT team. I feel like that SWAT team is going to be maybe less utilized and maybe maybe slightly less funded because of what Batman is able to handle. But that's really about the only impact I would say that that the the Batman existing would have on any sort of police functionality and functionality. Yeah. So it's kind of you know I mean even having a SWAT team if you got guys like I don't know. Uh, the my my uh Clayface Clayface thank you my brain just stopped uh you have guys like Clayface who a a SWAT team even isn't going to be very well equipped to handle you know he's going to I don't know you, you shoot at him nothing happens well but I mean that that I think that is I think that is more an element of publishing than anything is trying to make something that. It is a challenge for the heroes because I mean Batman punching and kicking is really not much different than than the police using shooting. handcuffs and shooting. Yeah, like the, there as far as uh, escalation of force, like there, if Batman can't handle it physically, the police aren't going to be able to handle it physically. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I mean, when you put something like Etrigan or Clayface in there, that is a challenge to Batman physically. It's also going to be overwhelming to the police. True, true. So yeah, we'll, we'll chalk that as a publishing thing then. But th- then you have guys like the Joker. Well, you know what? That that kind of that nullifies a lot of dis- of d- of the debate because you you have a really good point there. The Joker, who we've seen as being everywhere at once in a death death of of it, the family of the family. Yes, you know he, the only reason he's able to do that is because. That was well. The only reason he's able to do that is because that was a poorly done event. True. In that they didn't didn't even try to make the timeline work. No, they really didn't. And we and we discussed that, of course, in our death of the family coverage. Yeah, on, on arc reactions. So, uh, 
you know, um, go check that out. Hey, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's an interesting philosophical debate in so much as what does the what is the after effect of the hero? And you know what, guys? Uh, for the sake of brevity, tell us what you think in the comments. What do you think is the you know the effect? What is Batman actually responsible for versus what is by nature of existence going to happen as far as the villains go? We'd yeah, love to hear from you. Yeah, we definitely would like to hear your thoughts. Kind of, kind of where where does Batman fit into all of this? You know, what what would Gotham be like without Batman? What yeah. what would we see there if if we were if DC were to publish Gotham City and take Batman out entirely? Like Batman never existed, right? Like Batman never existed. What what villains do you think would have come up on their own, and what what do you think storytelling would be like in Gotham without the Batman? We look forward to hearing from you guys. All right. The, the last thing we want to talk about with this episode is the small continuity moments, because this is one of those things that having covered Bat Books for getting pretty close to two years now, we've seen these things kind of progress a little at a time through the various storylines. Now, the ones in this one was uh, Lucius Fox is recovering from his heart attack, and he's about ready to co- go back to working at Wayne Enterprises. And Batman or Bruce maybe jokes with him about taking back over the CEO. I mean, it's it's unclear because we had that one story, uh, I think it was Family, where Bruce was trying to be more involved in the company. So he was running the company as the CEO. And it sounds like maybe they're kind of taking a step back from that, which I, I've, I find that uh, if that's what is going to happen, a, a little disheartening because I, I like... And I've said this a number of times. I like to see Bruce helping his city and his company and Batman helping his city uh, side by side and, and doing two sides to to the equation. But you also have to take in effect that, one, in, in the publishing world, Bruce Wayne helping the city isn't exactly the most interesting stories. I mean, I, I can liken it back to the Marvel hero, uh, mutant hero Cypher, who is – that's a kind of amazing superpower. He can – read and comprehend any language including alien and including computer code and body language body language all these things but in a in a world where you know it's the x-men are an action team and you have all this action going on he's pretty much a a ineffectual hero because as useful as his powers are they're really hard to depict in an action story as something that's interesting to read yeah and we've we've touched on this uh, a couple of times about ways they could have handled that better than than they did yeah. but um yeah, I definitely understand what you're saying, and I'm not saying that ninety percent of the book should be Bruce Wayne running his company, but I'm saying that there are opportunities when you're when you're writing specific stories where the character Bruce Wayne or the person Bruce Wayne can do something that helps the situation along um like uh if you go back to our our Bruce Wayne fugitive episode uh, a a few months ago where um Joe was was pointing out that Leslie Tompkins says to Batman after he's uh, or yeah fugitive is the right one after after he's escaped that uh, he asks if there's anything he can do to help and Leslie goes no Batman can't help me but Bruce Wayne can because he funds Leslie's clinic you know he he can I- institute these programs in the city that can help reduce the amount of crime and reduce the workload on Batman. Well, you can go all the way back to No Man's Land with that too. You know there's mm-hmm. a piece in there about that. Right, so I'm saying that there are ways that you can incorporate it that I think will work and also not completely get rid of Batman. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think that's a a balance you have to strike. And I do agree, having some more Bruce Wayne-centric stories would not be necessarily a bad thing. They could be entertaining to read because he's having to use restraint and he's having to struggle not to just Batman out on people. 
you know, and just be Bruce Wayne and just deal with people who he doesn't like dealing. He doesn't like dealing with socialites. He doesn't like dealing with these rich people, but it's what he has to do as Bruce Wayne. And having those stories could be a very interesting character study and very interesting character story. Right. And and as we mentioned earlier, with this being a different type of detective story than we're used to, that could be a different type of Batman story than we're used to, where it's a little bit of a break from the, the status quo of, of the other Batman books. Oh, definitely. And, you know, it's something to show show my hand here. I really, really enjoyed this story. And I found this a very interesting story. And I love the fact that it wasn't super detective Batman. I love the fact that he was limited and he was trying to ke- play catch up to somebody who was clearly... A very very good at hiding his tracks, very good at, at manipulating the Batman in a way that he wanted. And I would love to see a continuation of this with Batman feeling vulnerable and Batman feeling like, oh, wow, this guy was really, really good. You know, and, and some acknowledgement that, that Sloan basically had him on the ropes for a good while. Yeah, I mean, it, w- it would be interesting, although that can easily devolve into territory where it's, it's sad, mopey Batman, and I don't really like sad, sad mopey Batman. Sad Batman. Batman sad. Yeah. But, um, I mean, the only reason Batman kind of wins the day is by a coin flip in this story. Uh, well, I mean, the Two-Face leaves because of a coin flip. Yeah, well, but, I mean, two, Two-Face basically had him dead to rights. Yes, he did. So. Um, uh, one more small continuity moment here. Batman consulting Catwoman for some information from the East End. I really like that, that it, he's... He's letting her set up in an area of Gotham. He's letting that be her area, and he's respecting her territory. And I think that that goes a long way to making the Catwoman title have some, some impact some and some meat meaning. To it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just, it's something where you assume she's actually doing good, and as you said, there's the Catwoman title that's an ongoing at this point. So it's having the character have her own agency. Whereas, you know, before it's something we've complained about and something we've talked a lot about is uh, female characters having agency or not ha- not being allowed to have agency. Yeah, or, or or the times that we've covered Catwoman where she's kind of brought in because something needs to be stolen. Like she's kind of limited in, in what in what she can do to help this, the situation. And uh, so, yeah, I, I did like seeing that that, that relationship is, is growing in, in and hopefully we'll get to see that continue as we move along to uh, additional stories. 13 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 13-year-old additional stories. Um, so we're on to our rating section here. So, Dylan, you already kind of started on this. Why don't you right, go, yeah, ahead go ahead and, and keep uh, going, man. Continue. Uh, it's something, you know, I'm sure you can ga- gather from what I've been saying. It's something I really enjoyed. It has elements that are really cool to me, like having Batman not be uber-detective, having him be almost outclassed by someone. And especially be outclassed by someone he didn't know was uh, was in in play. So it's something he has to adapt to and overcome. It's awesome character writing. It's awesome, you know, storytelling. It's, you know, as I said, a detective story, which I absolutely love. It's not Batman beating up everybody, punching, as, as John, you said, punching the city to make it behave. <laughs> I'm going to punch Gotham. No, uh, it's something I really, really loved. Uh, it's one that I would actually go back and read and highly recommend. I'm going to give it a four and a half batterings out of five. Yeah, that is, that is a high recommendation. I'm not quite as high on it. Um, wait, wait, wait. John's not quite as high on it as I am. You don't say. I know that this should be a huge <laughs> sack to everybody. Um, I did enjoy it. Um, I thought it had some good elements, but for just, for whatever reason, it didn't hit me like family did. I mean, family just hit all the right buttons. This one hit, some right buttons, but not all of them. I mean, like we're hard. I think, I think Oracle's the only other Bat Family person really in this story at all. 
I mean, yeah. pretty much everybody else is, is left out, and maybe that's why I don't feel like it, it quite hit everything. Um, but as you said, it, it's an excellent story. Ed Brubaker, the writer, did a, did an excellent job. More and more, I'm like a Brubaker's work. Yeah, Brubaker and Rucka, like, I could read them ad, ad nauseum and not get <laughs> nauseous. Yeah, ad nauseum until what? <laughs> yeah, I could read them forever. Um, the, I've, everything I've read from them, I've enjoyed. Uh, so I, I'm going to give it a four out of five batterings. I mean, that's not, not all that much lower that, than what you had. It's still a really good rating. It is. It's, it's still a, a four out of five for the average for both of us. Um, what were your thoughts? Go ahead and leave us a comment at the batmanuniverse.net on this episode page. We would love to hear your thoughts on the story, the show, or how we're doing. Also, that thing we mentioned earlier about Gotham without Batman. Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Hopefully you guys jump in and get discussing that because I'd love I personally would love to read your comments. While you're at the BatmanUniverse.net, though, you can read in-depth comic reviews, listen to the other podcasts that they offer, and get all your Batman news. It's a one-stop shop for all things Batman. And if you like what we do and would like to hear more of us, including our coverage of Death of the Family, you can visit us at arcreactionspodcast.blogspot.com and get some of the other stories that we've covered. Our next story will be Birds of Prey Catwoman Oracle next month. Join us then. And our credits for this story is very short. Detective Comics 777 to 782, February to July 2003. Written by Ed Brubaker. Artist Tommy Castillo. Editors were the associate editor Michael Wright and Bob Shrek. Thank you guys for listening and see you next month. 